I don't know. I mean, it was, yeah, it was very easy for him to sort of uh, shirk the responsibility and say, uh, you know, well, I'm not a journalist, you know, and that allowed him to sort of, you know, change perspective or just tell a story or, you know, one week drop in and tell a very serious story about Libya and the aftermath of Gaddafi's death. And the next week go to Lyon and just eat foie gras and truffles and go duck hunting. After reading Wolever's 400-plus page Rashomon, one comes away without answers. But there are insights, a sense of the relentless tide of events, relationships, ideas, and sensations. A human helplessness, almost. In the face of the overwhelming forces that anyone may have to endure, family pressures, feelings of inadequacy, long years of professional and personal disappointment, the images layer up and resolve into what you might have guessed all along. Just a man, vulnerable and alone, straining under the terrible weight of a myth. These are the words of Maria Bastios in a review about my guest this week on Tourist Information, Lori Woolever, who wrote, well, curated the definitive oral history on Anthony Bourdain. It's superbly interesting. And <laughs> Bastios said of... Roadrunner, the documentary on Bourdain, which currently is 2021's most successful documentary, that it is uh, a slickly commercial hagiography. I think that's a little harsh, but I know where she's coming from. And this is not that. This is uh, very unvarnished. It has 90 plus people from Bourdain's life talking. And it's so wonderfully complex and nuanced and the contradictions are all laid bare um, not to reconcile but just to have them there and that constellation is such a Rorschach test for us to not just look at him but look at ourselves and I think Bourdain's suicide is very much that also um, you watch the documentary and a number of people are angry at him and others are defensive. One of his closest producers says, you know, don't let this stupid bullshit act define him because his legacy is not this. <laughs> and I was so struck by that because why, why can't it be the good and the bad and the, the gloriousness that his life offered so many people, um, it's okay if it came from some of his demons too. Um, just as whatever he was searching for doesn't lose its importance because he may have been running from a wife and a child and staying put and whatever demons or nightmare awaited him there in his mind. Um, I think this is really relatable and really human for a lot of us. Um, so I guess lastly, one of the things I would really encourage people to read Laurie's book about is the inclusion of Bourdain's mother. And if ever there was uh, a sled <laughs> in the Citizen Kane sense, uh, a rosebud for Bourdain, my God, it is his mother. And uh, to hear her voice to me was the biggest revelation of the book, along with his brother, um, who was able to talk after the death of Bourdain's mother. Uh, in a way that he never has, and I don't think anybody has, about who Bourdain was and um, 
it was just so, so incredibly illuminating. So I hope you enjoy Lori Woolever, this week's guest on Tourist Information. I wanted to start off, um, I had Maria Bustillos on the show, and mm-hmm. I know that Tony got you to tell her that her um, going through all of his books was the most incisive portrait of him that he'd ever seen in print. Yeah. And I found her writing about your book was the most incisive criticism. Um, not, not that it was negative at all. She loved your, your oral history, but I thought we might start there with some of her words about what, what you did. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> precisely because Woolever didn't approach her subject looking for the real Bourdain, her book is the first to begin to reveal him. It's the most splintered, fractal, and complex portrait of the star that has yet emerged, an enormous compendium of individual observations gathered from 91 people who knew him, including his mother, and I definitely want to get to that with you, his brother also, his wives and his daughter, friends from school and college, ex-girlfriends, fellow chefs, writers, editors, and television colleagues. So what I wanted to ask is she referred to the Roadrunner documentary, which is currently, I I believe, the most successful documentary of 2021, Mm -hmm. um, as slick hagiography. I quite like the film, but I see what she's saying. So I wonder, how did you go about in terms of the architecture of this project and curating it to to get such a, um, the nuance and contradictions that you exposed and the dimensionality of Tony that was expressed in this, I, I just marveled at it. And I just wondered how so many other people seem to try to limit him into something simple, uh, deification or sainthood. Mm-hmm. Um, you went another direction that certainly wasn't negative, but it certainly leaned into the complexity. Yeah. Uh, Well, I do want to say, in defense of the film, uh, which I was a contributing uh, producer on, so I I felt like I, you know, I feel like I have a little bit of a dog in the fight. I think it's, in part, um, the differences between them, I I didn't find it to be a a slick uh, hagiography at all, but the differences between them, I think, are um, in part because of the format. You know, it's two hours of a feature film with major distribution that has to sort of hit certain points uh, in order for it to be commercially successful versus a book, you know, which really it's only uh, restraints are, are um, you know, at some point the publisher is gonna say, okay, you know, we need to limit it to 400 pages or whatever it ended up being. But, I, you know, I had just by virtue of the format that I was working in, I had a lot more freedom to go much deeper than, um, than a documentary uh, feature film does. Uh, and that, you know, and, and there are, you know, if you've read the book and if you've watched the film, you see that there are some, there are some extremely similar uh, quotes from the same people in the film and in the book. Uh, but I was, because of the, of the format of the book, I, of course, had the, the luxury of being able to go deeper and to, to, um, to, you know, have much, much longer and more involved quotes and, and to talk to many, many more people. Uh, so, you know, I started from a privileged position of having been Tony's assistant for close to 10 years, having known him since 2002, uh, you know, having existing relationships with a lot of these uh, subjects who I ultimately interviewed, uh, and then having great relationships that, that led me to other people who I didn't know or didn't have relationships with. Uh, so, uh, you know, I started already with, uh, with 
what I thought was a very deep well of knowledge. And then every interview that I did revealed that there was a lot more that I didn't know about Tony. In some cases, just, you know, details and, and um, you know, pieces of his, his history as a writer and, and just, you know, certain kind of charming things about his past. And in some cases, like really significant things that I, that I just hadn't known, um, that just never came up in my dealings with Tony or that weren't part of his carefully curated public image. Uh, so it was, you know, outside the luxury of time, I, I started working on this about a month after he died, maybe six weeks after he died, and uh, really kept working on it up until um, probably about a year ago at this point. And probably, I think it was maybe maybe late December or even in the, into the spring of 2021 that I did one or two final interviews. So I had a long time to really talk to people, search them down and really ruminate on what it was that was being told and how to, how to use it, what to use. And it's structured chronologically so that, you know, that really kind of lends itself to, you know, it, that's an easy structure. Um, and Tony lived a really big life. Uh, you know, he, he really, uh, he did a lot. He changed a lot. He moved around a lot. He, he moved um, into and out of many, many groups of people. So there was a lot to work with there. Interesting you say he moved a lot and you get searcher and the one word bio of enthusiast. <clears throat> but I've always found with certain characters like Thomas Wolfe's quote that you can never go home again. Tony seems an inversion of that, that in some respects he never left home. Hmm. He was carrying around some stuff that he seemed to be running from that kind of caught up to him eventually. In, in a certain sense. That was my impression of reading your book and the documentary. Is that fair? You know, I, I never really heard it put that way in terms of him um, never leaving home. Uh, well, you know, his, his life has sort of two, dis or a couple of distinctive parts, but one of them is, is the 28 years that he spent as a professional chef when he really didn't, you know, he really was in New York. He traveled very little. He spent a little time in the Caribbean and that was kind of it. He hadn't seen the world. And so he really, you know, in New York, although he didn't grow up in New York City, New York, the New York metro area was his home. And, and he really, you know, he, he was as much of a New Yorker as you can be having been, you know, born and raised in New Jersey. Uh, you know, as far as the sort of metaphysical uh, idea of, of these things that he never that he was running from and never really outran. I think, yeah, I think there's a case to be made there. You know, I think uh, if you look at the patterns of his romantic life, he was an obsessive romantic and he was always willing to burn his life down in the service of, of a woman, of a, of a romantic ideal of a relationship. You know, he graduated from high school a year early so he could chase his girlfriend to college and ultimately married her. You know, and then um, once that marriage ended, when his uh, fame began, uh, he was kind of always in search of a replacement of that, you know, and he had a couple of very intense love affairs that he was in some ways willing to kind of restructure his entire life in the pursuit of, of romantic love. The romantic trajectory of his life is the best kind of illustration of, of that uh, you know, outrunning his demons, but, but, you know, there was also the, the very, uh, you know, the, the idea of addiction, which um, he, he was very upfront, uh, you know, readers of Kitchen Confidential know, I mean, he, he did not hide his, his struggle with drugs and his very unlikely uh, way in which he kicked heroin and, and stopped using cocaine. 
Uh, but he never, he was never not an addict. He didn't do anything to overcome his uh, addictive behavior and his addictive uh, approach to everything else in life. You know, romance, uh, you know, lighter drugs, drinking, smoking, jujitsu, work, um, you know, whatever his, his passion was, you know, he, there was no uh, midpoint for him. It was either I'm a hundred thousand percent into something or I don't care about it at all. Uh, and that, you know, that was a choice that he made. He never did a 12 step. He never went to rehab. Uh, and in fact, he sort of openly, um, was hostile to the idea. You know, I myself quit drinking and started in the 12 step, um, approach. And I told him about it and he was like, that's a cult. Why would you do that? You know, because a friend of his had had an, ex you know, went in and out of the 12 step life. And so he just thought, well, that's, you know, they're, they're trying to ruin your life, these 12 steppers, you know, he just, he just had no use for that approach to, to managing one's um, appetites and addictions. So, and again, and I think that ultimately that was, that was, that was the cause of his downfall. You know, he was, he was addicted to love and romance and he, he had this un- realistic expectation of what a romantic relationship could do for him and when it when it disappointed him when it left him humiliated and vulnerable it was it was too much he couldn't he couldn't survive it and i mean i i had this feeling to some extent i remember something my dad said when he he went to a therapist for the first time and the therapist said what's the most important thing you're looking for and he said the brutal truth and she said we need to make a distinction whether you're looking for the truth or for brutality and not confuse that they're the same thing. Mm. And with Tony seeking somebody like Asia Argento, where it was pointed out, not one of the people you interviewed wasn't quite threatened by the idea of what that represented, including Tony saying to close friends, I know this is going to end horribly. Um, it's an interesting thing to grapple with that somebody is seeking self-destruction in a choice rather than despite that they're pursuing it. I, I don't know if you agree with that, that interpretation, but it, it does seem to be kind of a through line with him saying, the first time I shot up, I smiled in the mirror. Um, mm -hmm. It was a natural destination in my life. Like just again and again and again, there is this self-destruction or, or I don't know, self-abuse in some respect to him that I, I, it seems inexplicable to him when he reflects on it on camera. He says like, where did this come from? Why was I so angry? Why was I so upset with this bourgeois beginning with my parents loving me? What do you, what do you make of the candor that he has in terms of offering it out to the world and then saying things like when I'm writing in nonfiction, I'm far less truthful than when I write fiction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just find that so interesting. Yeah. You know, I think there is a, I mean, there's a very kind of, I don't want to use the word immature, but kind of a, you know, definitely rooted in childhood, rooted in, in adolescence, this, this rebellious streak, you know, if his mother wanted for him to be kind of a normal upstanding citizen who did well in school and had a high paying uh, predictable job, then the, that was the last thing he wanted for himself. You know, and he had, as you see in the book, he had a pretty troubled relationship with his mother. So I think, you know, whatever, you know, in some ways, whatever he could choose that was in opposition to what she wanted was, was what he drove toward. Um, 
And, uh, you know, you could say he's a product of his, his time and his culture, uh, you know, being a, a very young, impressionable person in the late 1960s, you know, not quite old enough to participate fully in things like Woodstock and the Summer of Love, but very aware of them and very, uh, you know, wishing he could be more involved uh, and, and really romanticizing the drug use and the hedonism and the free love and, you know, all of these things that, uh, were immortalized in culture at that point. I think that's probably a point of it. I think probably that, you know, the physical, as much as you, you know, you can believe in the physical reality of, of, you know, who is and who is not an addict. I think he, he had those, those tendencies, which I think are in some people hardwired. Uh, so I think it was, you know, all of those, all of those things uh, kind of in combination and, you know, seeing, seeing the, you know, some of his idols around him. And I think I said this in another interview, it was kind of this, or maybe I even said it to Maria, it was kind of this cliche, like starter pack of disaffected uh, male role models, you know, uh, uh, Burroughs and Hunter S. Thompson, and, you know, these, these guys who, who made beautiful, big careers out of, of being drunks and drug addicts and violent and antisocial and then turned around and made made art out of it. And I think Tony himself was quoted as as saying that in uh, in in the film um, in Roadrunner. So yeah, I think it was all of these things, you know, and then he, you know, he did himself, you know, take all of his bad behavior and his bad decisions and make uh, an extremely successful uh, career turn with, with having written Kitchen Confidential. So it succeeded for him for a while, you know, it to, to, you know, he, he followed that model and it, and it catapulted him out of, uh, you know, poverty and obscurity. So I can see, you know, well, this worked for me, I'm just going to keep doing more of the same. Right. One other thing Bustillo's review also touched upon that I thought was interesting and, and I totally agreed with it was that your 400 page book was a kind of Rashomon. And she said, one comes away without answers, but there are insights, a sense of the relentless tide of events, relationships, ideas, and sensations, a human helplessness almost in the face of the overwhelming forces that anyone may have to endure. Um, and, and she talks a lot about the human being that was straining under the terrible weight of the myth, her, her quote. Um, Yet he is peddling this myth to a huge extent. And a lot of these interviews that you conduct and, and others, um, it's very interesting what is avoided or even concealed. Um, to hear his brother talk about, and he says this a lot, we weren't rich, we weren't rich. And yet when the father dies, there's a trust fund that drops a quarter million dollars on both of their heads in 1987, when he supposedly can't pay off his Amex bill ever, can't pay the rent, it suggests that this is a family that is pretty comfortable, maybe not as comfortable as somebody in a penthouse in Manhattan, but I've never had a quarter million dollars drop on my head, and certainly not in 1987, where you could buy a very luxurious apartment in Manhattan at that time. So he's, he's leaving things out that certainly change the trajectory of relatability that might mm -hmm. actually be there like the mom um you know this i'm found in a slush pile in the new yorker instead of my mom is friends with david remnick's wife and that's how <laughs> my story gets passed along i'm not mm -hmm. taking away from the work but mm -hmm. most of us don't have that those kind of connections yeah yeah 
it's interesting. You know, I never really thought too much about the the, the money thing. I mean, I, I you know, I think the truth is that they did struggle when when the kids, you know, when Tony and his brother were in school. I, I think, um, you know, these these the the inheritance that came later. Yeah, that's a lot of money, you know. Um, and that, you know, what I've been told is that, you know, Christopher, Tony's brother, I mean, he used that money to buy a house in Scarsdale or, you know, where at Larchmont, you know, I think he got a pretty nice house in the eighties for that kind of money. Sure. And my understanding is that Tony kind of pissed his away. You know, he probably, uh, maybe, maybe didn't pay his taxes, maybe paid off some bills or paid some back rent. And then it sounds like, the rest of it went, you know, uh, to Coke and heroin and, and probably, you know, he probably gave it away. I think he made some dumb purchases, you know, big screen TV or maybe they got some new furniture. I mean, yeah, it's a little bit, you know, if you really start to parcel it out, it's like, that's a lot of money, you know, especially in the mid eighties, but, um, you know, he was terrible with money. Yeah. And that was true. You know, that was kind of true all the way through. I mean, terrible with money is probably overstating it, you know, as he got, as he started making more of it, but he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, you know, I've known plenty of people with a lot of money who are extremely frugal and that's, you mm -hmm. know, and that was, he, he could not be bothered to price shop, you know, or to, or to um, try and haggle a discount on anything or, you know, even, you know, even waste a second worrying about how much things cost. So yeah, it's, you're right. I mean, there is, um, there are contradictions there, you know, and, and there, you know, and Maria Bustillos makes a lot of this sort of burden of the of the public persona, but it was something that he ran toward with you know it, with full speed. He he blew up his old life in order to be uh, on television, even though he was deeply ambivalent about it. But you know he wrote this book as a Kitchen Confidential, as in the hopes of writing his way out of of uh, obscurity. And this was the third book that he had written, you know, in an attempt to to stop having to work as a chef. Um, so, you know, in some ways, yeah, he put, he put, he put himself in the center of this thing that then ultimately was sort of torturous to him, but he couldn't resist it. You know, it was right. the, the fame was maybe as addictive as any other thing in his life. Mm. Well, and, it, and it's also interesting to me, you talk about the outward striving towards these male figures, but what is not talked about as much by him is when I think a reviewer said, or somebody who knew him and knew his mother said, you're a mama's boy. And mm -hmm. he took enormous exception to it because mm -hmm. of its accuracy and said, How, why would you call me that? And she, I think a woman said, because you are. It's so abundantly obvious. And I think Chris says in your book, my mother <laughs> at the New York Times, as a copy editor, it was the perfect job for a grammarian who loves correcting people. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that kind of like Hemingway, um, it's the mother that is all over who this person is. As much as they strive towards male figures, it's to run away from the enormously powerful feminine figure in their life. Yeah. I, at least I kept coming to that over and over again, reading your book and in the documentary. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting, too, because, I, you know, in talking to uh, the people that made television with him. And most of them were men that were out in the field, directing, producing, cinematographers, certainly a lot of the editors. It was a very overwhelmingly male crew. And yet there were a few outstanding women that would also be part of this, this crew. And two directors in particular, um, two women. And, 
my strong sense in talking to them and in you know knowing their work uh, while they while Tony was alive, his his ability to take criticism and direction from them was completely different than with the men. The men were by and large you know deeply fearful and had a had a real hands-off approach and were very very troubled when they had to give tony direction or they had to correct anything and these two women you know they knew that they could you know push him around but they could they could really stand up to him and he took it and i think he kind of loved it you know he really loved as much as he spent his life running away from his mother's authority he also really I think craved the attention and the correction of of strong uh, women. You know, I mean, if you look at the the women that he was in romantic relationships, they are you know two one, extremely strong, outspoken, kind of roll their eyes at his bullshit. You know, I mean, they really they they kind of gave it to him. Uh, and the men that were around him, it was always in a in a sort of a subservient position. Uh, Interesting. So. You know, one could have a field day with that, I suppose. Yeah, you can see it in the documentary where I think Otavia and his relationship is just beginning and she's saying, you're just so full of shit and everything. And he delights in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Revel, revels in sort of being pushed around by a strong, powerful woman. Yeah. Um, whereas in Tom Vitale's book, the takeaway is, yeah, you're right, subservient seems to be very much what he wanted to surround himself with. That's mm -hmm. fascinating. Um. I wanted to get at the issue of ambition with Tony because it's, it's we're in a strange time now where whenever I listen to podcasts that are interviewing journalists or anything to do with the political cycle, nobody's allowed to have ambition anymore. Mm. It, it's radioactive to actually want to be president or to want um, to be a journalist. Everybody seems to fall into their Ivy League education and fall into their career path. I had no idea I would do this. I assume... I'd become my parents. Um, Tony's sort of dumb luck success story um, belies what well, Bustillos points out, the really enormous amount of ambition that was largely thwarted until things worked out when he was 43, the careerism, um, a friend, this is mentioned in your book, who actually underwrote him writing his first book, and Tony almost immediately parts ways with him after the book gets published. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that, that there's, it, it's interesting how much he talks about luck, as opposed to how much I really wanted to be in this position. And then he's almost caught in the spotlight. I, I'm working 250 days a year. How can I have a regular life? Well, nobody forced you to be in this position. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, you know, it speaks to that ambivalence, right, that that sort of was a, is a through line, um, you know, do I want to be a writer or do I want to be a chef, do I want to be a college student or do I want to wash dishes and, you know, uh, smoke weed, uh, you know, do I, do I want to be a family man or do I want to, you know, be out on the road uh, every day of my life, um, uh, and yeah, there are, there are some, well, Patrick Radden Keefe of uh, The New Yorker wrote a, uh, a very uh, deeply researched profile of Tony in the magazine, uh, I think it was published in 2017. And he brought up the point that, that uh, in their interviews, Tony was very nonchalant about this, this writing thing and you know, just made it seem as if, you know, really it was all about being a chef and a cook and the writing thing was just something he did to kind of amuse his friends. But, but the the historical record reflects otherwise. And he went and tracked down these 
letters that are now uh, in an archive at NYU. And one of them is reproduced in the, in the book, uh, in the photograph section, uh, where Tony's clearly very hungry and very ambitious and strikes up a friendship and a mentorship with um, his friend Joel Rose, who was, who was publishing a downtown magazine and you know, had some uh, hold in the, in the literary scene in New York. Um, and, and it was Patrick that first pointed out, actually, Tony was deeply ambitious and worked very hard and wanted nothing more than to be a writer um, and to have a creative life, uh, you know, from, from the, the mid eighties. So this was, you know, this is sort of the, the interesting trick of that, that Tony pulled off a lot of the time was, you know, he, he seemed to be revealing his innermost desires and feelings and, and uh, motivations, but a lot of times that was cover for what was truly going on or, or it just wasn't, the entire story. He was telling the story that served the purpose at the time, whether it was being entertaining and Kitchen Confidential or, uh, you know, whatever it was. It, there was there was always more um, there was always more to it than that. And I suppose that's true of any one of us, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, that we we kind of put forth what serves the narrative and what serves our motivations at the time. Right. Well, no, and I mean. It's interesting because what I, what I love in particular about your book is that we finally get to see the childhood. We finally get some light thrown on these things that he almost never spoke about. Just like he never spoke about the first marriage other than to say, I burned it down. And yeah. it's like, oh, well, this woman you've been with for over 25 years, it's just just burned it down. That's it. Um, and yet I... I I think a lot about what he's advertising, the bumper sticker of enthusiast on Twitter, but what you seem to illuminate with all of these people that are close to him is far from being an enthusiast, not to say that's not true or, or that this is mutually exclusive, it's the depression, the anxiety, the imposter syndrome. I mean, it's this from the passion trace the wounds and he wants us to see the passion of the searcher, but not so much the terror of standing still, of being a husband, of being a father, of creating a home. Um, it all seems like that enormous ambivalence about those things. Um, the relationship with the mom just seems to really come to the forefront of borrowing money from her and then her coming to him to get money. So I wonder if you could speak to the addition of the mom's voice in your work, because it to me was the most fascinating thing that I've ever had as a vein toward understanding this man. Yeah, you know, I wish that I had, uh, well, I mean, you know, I spoke to her not too long after Tony died, probably in September or October of 2018. Um, and I wouldn't have had occasion to speak with her earlier because Tony was still alive, but, but she already wasn't, she wasn't the most um, reliable narrator already at that point. You know, I think her memory was starting to fail a little bit. She did die in, in January of 2020. Uh, but I, but I did get to speak with her and she, you know, the things that she said about Tony were largely, you know, hugely complimentary and very, of course, you know, the, uh, coming from a, a grieving mother and a, and a very old, um, woman. Uh, and, and, and of course she, she would never, you know, much like Tony and probably a more, much more extreme version, you know, everything that she said was, was, was meant to flatter herself and was meant to flatter Tony. And, and, you know, she would never uh, get into sort of the, the conflicts. I, I'm sure if I asked her about any conflict she had with Tony, she would deny it outright, you know, so it really was up to 
his brother Christopher to really shade in the, you know, the finer details. And I knew that they didn't have, you know, when Tony was alive, I knew that there, there was a strain in the relationship, but I never really knew the extent to which or the reasons why. Um, it's, uh, yeah, she, you know, she, she is a fascinating character and, and the, there's some really, um, uh, dark details that, that Christopher shared about her experience of losing Gladys, losing uh, both of her parents when she was pregnant with Tony and this totally non-scientific, but possibly plausible idea that the, the extreme grief and shock that she experienced as a, as a expectant mother somehow affected Tony's uh, psyche, you know? And I mean, it could also be the case that she was a deeply depressed and grieving person when Tony was first born and she may not have been able to, you know, nurture him in, in the way. I mean, this is all speculation. I, I don't know, right. uh, you know, how, how that all went, but you know, all of these things, I mean, we talk about sort of inherited trauma and generational trauma, and there's certainly probably an example, if you believe in that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a case to be made here where she was, you know, she deeply, shocked and aggrieved when, when she started having children. And, and that may well have affected uh, the way that she was able to, to show love and affection, so. And, and, and another thing that, that is pointed out um, that I thought was really interesting is that she hid the fact that she was Jewish from, from her children until they're teenagers. So not, uh, not just the depression, but also the code switching that seems a huge part of Tony. I mean, the Tony that you see in the first TV episodes, his accent is different. His clothing is totally different. His manner is different. It's the sort of uh, Bugs Bunny kind of version of something that later on is uh, like Eric Repair makes this point that he was so well-mannered and you think, well, I wonder where that came from. <laughs> but he doesn't like you to see it so much. He would prefer the relatable street guy from the Lower East Side, despite he didn't live on the Lower East Side. Right, right. He was Upper West Side all, all the way and then Upper East Side later. So right. yeah, he, he never lived downtown, but he liked to visit. Um, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that, that influence is very strong there with Gladys. You know, what, what, what's truly regrettable is, is that, uh, that his father, Pierre, died so young. I think he was 56 or 57 when he died. Uh, so, you know, none of us that, that knew Tony after that point got to meet him. And I think he would have, you know, would have been such an interesting uh, piece of the puzzle, you know, to meet the other side. One of Tony's friends is quoted in the book saying, you know, uh, Pierre is where Tony got his goofy side and, and Gladys is where he got his sneer. So, I, you know, I really would have loved to have meet to meet the, the, the man behind the man, you know, who by all accounts was very easygoing and not ambitious and loved a joke and, you know, loved to read and, and history, but wasn't, um, you know, was very much the opposite of Tony's mother in a lot of ways. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about the, the father, again, somebody who Tony almost never speaks about other than to measure how long he had to live, it sounded mm -hmm. like. It sounded mm -hmm. like there was a big fear 57 was going to be a marker yeah. if I can get past it. Um, but yeah, the lack of ambition, that he was kind and easygoing, and, and as Chris points out in your book, um, was kind of abused by the mother. Mm, yeah, she was, I think she was frustrated with him you know it sounded like he wasn't he wasn't super ambitious in his career and I'm sure that was you know part of their 
financial troubles um, and, and maybe he, he just, you know, it's, it's all sort of speculation, but it sounded like, yeah, Chris says in the book that she wasn't terribly nice to him in the last few years of their, of their marriage. Yeah, um, I wanted to move on. The, the documentary has received a fair bit of criticism for not interviewing Asia Argento. And that chapter at the end, um, I mean, August 19th, the New York Times comes out with an article detailing that Argento, uh, apart from her repu reputation going after Harvey Weinstein that Bourdain was so militantly in favor of and supportive of, and apparent, according to um, his wife and also Helen Cho, um, that there was no nuance in how he viewed the Me Too movement. Anybody historically where there was one um, mistake or error um, in his view, he cut off completely. Um, and yet behind the scenes, according to the New York Times and some other reporting, I think in Rolling Stone, um, it was Bourdain who underwrote the 300, oh, 300 plus thousand dollars of Argento's victim of statutory rape, Jimmy Bennett. So I wondered if you could, I just haven't heard anybody speak to this issue and, and I don't have an agenda about what I'm trying to make of it. It's just curious for somebody who is so vocal and visible in support of the Me Too movement to be paying for the silence and to be aligned with somebody accused of this crime while uh, promoting the image of being the exact opposite of, of an advocate for victims. I, I just wonder what you made of, of that situation that unfolded so soon after Tony's death. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I, I can say, you know, uh, that the reason that that specific thing is not in the book is because it was kept very, very quiet and there were, you know, almost no one uh, from my book knew anything about it until until later until after Tony's death it wasn't something I was aware of and I think you know I think he knew better I think he knew that it was an extremely sensitive thing that would that that would you know and in, certainly invite accusations of hypocrisy at the least so uh, you know not having any firsthand knowledge of it you know nobody was really able to speak with about it on the record for me uh, and nor in the film, um, you know, I will say that as much as, you know, Tony was always uh, very respectful of women, you know, he wasn't one of those guys, you know, either chef or, or television uh, personality who, who, you know, abused women or, or treated women with disrespect. Um, so I think his embrace of the Me Too movement was, was very sincere and came from a place of, of true respect for women and, and, a, and a lifelong uh, pursuit of, of, you know, uh, trying to help the underdog. Mm -hmm. I, I also, you know, my understanding of it now is that uh, this was very much, much more about trying to be the most supportive and the most, uh, you know, unconditionally loving partner to somebody who was going through, uh, you know, a, being a, being a, a Me Too so, or being a you know a victim of um, of sexual abuse, being being you know uh, this was Ozia was an accuser, and she had spoken out against Harvey Weinstein, and so Tony was going to support her no matter what. And I think he wanted you know to be very public and very vocal because I think that was his way of expressing to Ozia that he was 
a thousand percent on her side, no matter what the sort of murky circumstances of her accusation or anything else about uh, her life. It was, it was, you know, let me show you how I can use my platform to support you. Uh, and, and, you know, as far as the stuff that she had going on with her own accuser, I think it was of, it was of the same piece. It was, okay, well, you've got somebody who's trying to uh, get some money out of you or to buy, you know, buy your son or get you to buy their silence. I'm going to support you on that because, so it wasn't really of so much about the specifics of who was accusing whom or, you know, who was right. It was about, this is what Ozio wants or needs. Uh, and here are opportunities for me to be the best and most supportive partner. And I'm going to do it regardless of the optics or the, uh, you know, the ethics involved. Things I wanted to ask you about because of your relationship with Tony was there was a revelation in Tom Vitale's book that they they had a dispute while they were filming an episode of a show and it it escalated to the point of Tony choking him until he was pried off. Mm -hmm. Bit of a suggestion like where would this have gone had yeah. he not been pried off? And I thought it was particularly interesting in light of Tony's confession in the Argentina episode with the therapist where he said, I often think about killing or hurting someone, choking them, he specifically says, which is what he's alleged to have done to Vitaly. And then he adds, or harming himself. And Chris says in the documentary, had somebody been in the hotel room with Tony at the time of his death, I believe it would have been a murder, perhaps instead of a suicide or a murder-suicide. That's certainly not a side of Tony that we really think about. Like, the, like he does not seem like a violent person at all, and yet he seems to be harboring this kind of rage or something. I, I just wonder what you made of, of, of those elements of his story that have been kind of revealed since his death. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there are different scenarios. You know, I, I wasn't there in, in Borneo. Uh, you know, I did read Tom's book, and I, I know that... Uh, that this was something that happened. I don't. I don't know the extent to which uh, Tom was in danger. I, I believe it. I, you know, everyone was. It sounds like everyone was blind drunk. Right. Um, so you know, if there was an exaggeration on Tom's part uh, or not, or if Tony was you know so out of control that he may not have you know been able to stop himself before he truly hurt Tom. Uh, I, I don't know, but yeah, it, it's, it's not great. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty shameful. And, um, you know, it was obviously a, you know, a huge um, kind of a, you know, a, a milestone for Tom. And I know he was considering uh, leaving the, the job at that point. And then, and then he didn't, um, uh, I mean, you know, Tony, Tony got into jujitsu very heavily and that's, you know, and he, there's a, there's a, Nick Brigden, one of his directors talks about, they, they started um, rolling, uh, you know, doing a jujitsu uh, sparring and he, uh, Tony pretty badly injured Nick's knee, you know, and, and I think, I think Tony loved jujitsu because it was sort of this sanctioned violence, you know, with rules and with regulations, but within those rules and regulations, you can really beat the shit out of somebody, you know, in a, in a, in a controlled way. And, and I think he, he loved that, you know, I think he, 
he loved being able to to be aggressive and i think he he sort of welcomed people coming at him you know he was proud of his injuries he had some crazy cauliflower ear uh nari kai talks about in the book that at one point i guess his penis turned black because of some injury you know he was in the hospital with a with a groin pull or with some some injury to his thigh i mean it's just crazy so I think that was always part of him, you know, is despite him being, you know, a very gentle father and very um, respectful to women and, you know, never an ass grabber or anything like that. But that was always an aspect of, it was always in there somewhere, you know. Uh, and as far as the, you know, the, the, the violent ideation that he talked about in Argentina, I mean, I don't know, you could say that that some of that is, I, I think that's of a piece, but I think also, you know, that, that whole therapy session sort of, to me, was felt very theatrical. You know, I think he was being honest, but I think it also was, you know, he knew that he had to go in there and, you know, at least give the appearance of revealing something because they were shooting a therapy sequence for a television show about a city that's famously, you know, uh, in therapy. So I, I don't know how much, you know, I always sort of wonder about the, the veracity of all of that. Um, and his brother Christopher's comment about, you know, it might have been a murder, if not a suicide, I think that really speaks to, you know, our posthumous understanding of, of how, um, how hurt and betrayed and humiliated Tony felt at the end of his life when, uh, you know, some things were revealed in the press about, about, uh, about his relationship. Yeah. So, I mean... I, you know, I, I don't know if he would have been capable of murder, but I think that was sort of a, maybe, maybe just a, a hypothesizing just, you know, try, or maybe an exaggeration about, about how uh, we, we all imagine or we know that, that how, how deeply hurt Tony was at the end of his life. One of the first episodes I watched after his death um, was the episode in Southern Italy where he starts smoking on camera again. Mm -hmm. He has a great meal and he said, oh, it almost makes you want to start smoking again. And I could have sworn that he got very emotional mm -hmm. um, after he takes in this, there's this exhalation of the smoke and then he sort of seems very happy for a second, but behind the glasses, his face seems to get a little red. Mm -hmm. And the next cut is to a child's hands against the sky being pulled apart and then Jesus Christ on the cross. And for somebody who so explicitly created this myth of why they quit smoking, which according to Tom Vitale, he never did, he mm. just presented it, mm -hmm. um, was explicitly because of the birth of his daughter. Yeah. I need to be here for this girl. I need to be responsible now after all these years of recklessness. So to then put it out on TV as a confessional, um, that I'm going to start smoking again, like, whoa, what a great meal. I mean, all he does is eat great meals, but suddenly I'm going to eat a great meal. It's hard not to look back on it and sort of excavate. Uh, I guess you're sort of throwing in the towel in some respect, and you want us to see that a little, it just seems like a little bit of a cry for help. Mm -hmm. And so, so my question to you is, in the documentary, one of his closest producers, one of the first two producers that worked with him, she says, I don't want this last act, this last bullshit act to define the legacy because the legacy should not be that. And yet through, and, and another person says, for a storyteller, where's the suicide note? Well, the whole series is a suicide note. All the books are a form of suicide note, aren't they? Because he keeps talking about suicide 
all the way along. He is giving you this little glimpse into something that was largely hidden, but periodically you can glimpse it throughout the life. So I wonder, yeah. why do people have this need with him to make it mutually exclusive that demons drove him to do some really wonderful things, but we want it to be just it's his virtue that does the good things instead of it can be both. Why do we have this ambivalence about suicide that it's an aberration from who he was? Certainly doesn't seem like an aberration from who he was. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, there is no one easy answer and I certainly don't have it. You know, he did, you know, he talked a lot about suicide, but it was, um, you know, at the time it seemed very much like a shtick. I mean, there was a point where I was like, this, you know, this is, this is, needs to get a new joke, you know? Uh, and it, a lot of times it was this hyperbolic, like, oh, this, you know, this song is so terrible, I wanna kill myself, or this hamburger or, you know, whatever it is. Um, yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that he had a lifelong self-destructive tendency, but there were definitely periods where he had a very strong will to live. You know, when he he talks about having, you know, kicked heroin because he wanted to, you know, he thought he was somebody worth saving. Uh, you know, changed a lot of his habits when his daughter was born because he wanted to be, you know, a good father and be around for her. Uh, you know, just before just before he died, he he re-upped his contract with CNN. You know, and just days before, probably two days before he died, you know, we were talking, and I was making haircut appointments and lunch plans, and uh, you know, there was like there were still clothes that he had ordered that were still coming to the apartment after he he died, and um, you know, there were there was no grand plan. Uh, as far as I know, to to end his life with suicide. So I think it's I think both things can be true that he he was a lifelong had a lifelong you know habit of periodic self destructive impulses, um, and he also you know was planning to live until he didn't until he made the decision. Which my, the way that I find comfort in is is I I do believe it was sort of a spasm of despair and grief and a momentary, you know, rage and, and humiliation and not the culmination of a longstanding plan. That's how I choose to see it. And, and I think I'm right, but, you know, who's to say for real? Yeah, and I'm not suggesting any way I've monopolized some understanding. I've never met the man, but it, it is interesting, somebody who confessed to their dominant recurring nightmare was being in a, a Victorian hotel that he couldn't escape. Yeah. And that ends up being the last chapter, in, in a sense. Um, I just wonder what you make of the response to, let's say, the documentary being the most successful one of 2021. It seems like every, you, everywhere your book has gone, it's gotten glowing reviews. It's been incredibly meaningful to readers. Um, people certainly aren't quitting Anthony Bourdain on any level. It seems like his purchase has only grown since his death. And I, you know, that's, that's kind of rare in American cultural life, I think. Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, just because the physical person is gone, you know, the work remains, still remains really vital to people. And, you know, there's, I think, you know, new generations that will continue to discover it and, and be moved by it. Um, uh, you know, and we're now, what three a little more than three and a half years since his death and and 
this was a big year for, for Bourdain products. You know, I don't think it wasn't intentional, but, you know, three books and a film all, all out in the same year about Tony. Um, it's a lot, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm just pleased that, that, I mean, I think there probably is a little bit of Bourdain fatigue, but, um, you know, I, I have every reason to believe that there probably will be a, a true biography, you know, deeply researched uh, traditional biography. And they're probably, you know, people are certainly making television that, that continues to kind of reflect uh, the impact he had. Um, I don't know, it's, I mean, it's lightning in a bottle, you know, it was this, this charisma, good looks, uh, you know, high intellect, high humor, uh, right place, right time, uh, you know, and, and, a, and a subject matter that is, that is like incredibly universal, you know, food and travel, you know, who doesn't like to eat, who doesn't like to travel? I mean, you know, some people, but it, but it's, you know, there's a, there's a, that, that encompasses a huge uh, segment of the population. So, um, you know, it's kind of an extraordinary confluence of circumstances and, uh, and not everybody loves him. I mean, he has his detractors, you know, but um, yeah, there was, you know, I can't tell you how many people would come up to me when he was alive and even afterwards and say, you know, if I could just have a beer with Tony, I know we would get along so well. I know we would have such a good time. There was something that felt so relatable about him to people, you know, that they really felt he, he wasn't a, an untouchable celebrity in here. He wasn't, you know, as much as he was so smart and so well-read and so well-traveled, he managed to not uh, transmit any level of pretentiousness to people who might otherwise be put off by, uh, you know, a different type of television celebrity or, or writer. Um, I can't quite, explain it but it was it was uh you know he had that effect on people that they wanted to you know that cliche they would he's a guy i could have a beer with you know right. i'm not sure that he would have agreed but but that's 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 what people got from him so well i wonder also it seems like there's a bit of overlap with hemingway again i mean hemingway like bourdain was kind of the most famous travel writer in the world every restaurant he went to every place he ever lived people flocked to the same way they do with bourdain and in a similar way, um, any sort of unfished stream that he discovers becomes awful to go to. It becomes mm -hmm. the most expensive, the, the most touristy kind of place. And it seemed like this trajectory of Bourdain's is really interesting in that he becomes the world's most famous traveler, having never been a traveler. And at the end of the trajectory, he, by his own admission, is agoraphobic. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder, like, if you could speak to that, that this is somebody, again, who has volunteered to travel 250 days a year mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and is terrified when he tells his producers, I can't keep doing this. And they say, well, stop doing it. Yeah. And he doesn't know what else to do other than to keep doing it. Why did this person get trapped getting everything they wanted, living, in, in his words, the ultimate job? the ultimate fantasy of a job. Why does he feel this urge? I mean, he could have been Paul Newman and just gone to Westport out of, out of fame's eye and retreated, but now he's dating a high profile woman. And, you know, like if I, I live not far from, from his apartment at, at Columbus Circle. Um, not exactly the first apartment I would assume that he would be living in, like with sort of, again, the image he's projecting, like, 
just yeah. above CNN. What yeah. happened here with this trajectory? Well, I think, you know, Anderson Cooper talked a lot about this, about the effect that that travel has on a person uh, where, you know, you really, you have to be, you have to have kind of a grounding, you know, you have to have the right, um, you know, landing pad. I mean, some other people in the book also talked about it. Paula Froelich, who was one of uh, his ex-girlfriends and who has traveled quite a bit in her life. Uh, you know, he, he, I don't know. I mean, I, I can say that I think he he was addicted to the to the excitement and the lifestyle, and um, it it does change you. It does sort of set you apart from everyone around you, so that when you do go home, it's it becomes more you know more and more difficult to relate to people who don't live that kind of life. And after a while, uh, you know, the the people that you relate to the best are the people who are also traveling and living that same way. And, and because everybody is bouncing around the world working so much and never in the same place for very long, it's a very it's very difficult to make long-term stable lasting connections. Uh, so then it, you know then you become more lonely. So then you you know it's a it's like a vicious cycle. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, and I, I think in this comes up in the book as well. This he had a real um, sense of responsibility, the burden of res of responsibility, the burden of leadership, right? So you know he had pulled all of these people along with him for years and years, making television um, people who had been very loyal to him as as crew members. And I think there was a there was a fear, there was a sense of if I pull the plug and I retire and I just sit still, what's going to happen to all these guys? And the, I mean, that's a very it's sort of an egocentric perspective because everyone was an adult. Everyone made their own decision to be loyal to him and to make TV with him. And everyone was very talented and certainly could have found uh, work elsewhere, you know, but he really had the sense that he had created this ship. And that if he if he walked off of it, that it would leave a lot of people high and dry. You know, he was very generous. He had, you know, uh, so I think I, I think that was that was a, a real concern for him. But I think that also probably was a convenient excuse to keep doing it because there was, you know, there was the there was an addictive quality, you know. And and I it, I think it also sort of came to define him. You know, there might have been the question of, and this is speculation now, but there might have been the question of who am I if I'm not traveling the world? Am I still interesting to people? Am I still relevant? Am I still, do I have anything to say if I'm not saying it from, you know, Namibia or Oman or St. Petersburg? If I'm just saying it from my desk in my apartment in New York City, you know, that again, I'm, I'm just speculating, but it's, I think there were a lot of factors that kept him from, from really pulling back as much as he said he wanted to. Well, and certainly your book and the, the film point out that pretty early on, as he gets really successful, he's asking who's benefiting from this. And the obvious person is he's benefiting from this. Mm -hmm. I mean, all these people around him are saying the show is not about what he's chasing. It's about him becoming a better person mm -hmm. um, while ostensibly being of service. You know, he's regularly saying, I'm not an educator. I'm not a politician. It's like comedians who run away from, like John Stewart, saying, I, "I'm not a. I shouldn't be accountable the same way a journalist is." But most people are getting their journalism from him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Politics. It, it it does beg the question: Well, who are you then? What do you represent? Yeah, yeah. I, 
I don't know. I mean, it was, yeah, it was very easy for him to sort of uh, shirk the responsibility and say, uh, you know, well, I'm not a journalist, you know, and that allowed him to sort of, you know, change perspective or just tell a story or, you know, one week drop in and tell a very serious story about Libya and the aftermath of Gaddafi's death. And the next week go to Lyon and just eat foie gras and truffles and go duck hunting, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, yeah. I mean, it was kind of the beauty of what he did, you know? Um, I think it kept him nimble. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it, that was, and it was, I guess, you know, of a piece with, with the way that he was constantly moving. I mean, his, his, again, his director, Nick Brigden in the book says, Tony was like a shark, you know, he had to keep moving to survive. So right. if, he didn't, if he wasn't just one thing, you could never really pin him down, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, last question um, is Bastillos concludes her review of your film by saying it's clear to me now more than ever that the real Bourdain never appeared on TV and few ever knew him. He was uncomfortable with his stardom, hated it even much of the time, and hated what it did to the people and places he loved. Mm -hmm. However much he enjoyed the process of writing and making his shows, however proud he was of the many extraordinary things he'd been able to achieve, the secret was hidden in plain view. And he talked about his misgivings openly with many interviewers. Um, it recalled for me in Vitaly's book, a scene that was really sad, which was at the wake for Tony, that Vitaly is looking around and saying, all these people just knew him on TV, but didn't really seem to know him when a camera wasn't rolling. Oh yeah, I'm part of his film crew too. Who really knew this person when it wasn't in a sense performative? And I thought, boy, for one of the best known beloved communicators in the world, it recalls what Tony said himself. I communicate for a living and I don't know how to communicate to the people I love. I don't know how to do this. And, and I, I, I don't know if you were one of the people who was at that wake that Vitaly is describing, but it, it really sent a chill down my spine of, of just how sad it, because he's so lovable mm -hmm. and yet, you know, Vitaly, who seems to adore him as a sort of father figure and in many respects mentor. Um, how, did, how did it get there, I, I guess, was my question. Well, you know, I'll take some exception first with, with that, with Tom's observation, because I think that, you know, at that wake there, there were arguably, you know, many, if not most of the people that were closest to Tony and some that that did have those, you know, more kind of professional relationships with him. But, uh, you know, there were there were moments when Tony let himself be relaxed and let him be known, let himself be known. And, uh, you know, there were certain members of his crew. I mean, you know, Tom among them, I think, who who I think really did see the real Tony, you know, who was who was, uh, you know, when the camera wasn't rolling. Um, and some of his closest friends were on his television crew. You know, I, I had a very professional relationship with him, but I certainly had moments where, you know, where we would be very honest with each other, where he would talk about, um, you know, very personal things. Uh, you know, Tony's agent, Kim Witherspoon, as, you know, as much as, you know, she was an agent and he was her client, they were very, very good friends. And she knew a lot about him and the way that his heart worked. Uh, so, um, but how did it get that way? I, I think that is just an essential part of who Tony was. I think he just wasn't, he didn't, he didn't let a lot of people in. I think he, you know, he, knowing what I know now and the, you know, the, the, the people that I talked to from all parts of his life, all, all eras of his life, there were always 
a couple of people around that he kept close and they changed as his circumstances changed, but he had some capacity when he wanted to uh, or when he had enough peace of mind to have intimacy with people, but it wasn't his natural state. Uh, and there was always this sense of remove, uh, you know, his, his editor on Kitchen Confidential and, um, and the cookbook and maybe also medium, not medium raw, but, uh, but uh, Panio Giannopoulos who worked closely with Karen Rinaldi on Kitchen Confidential uh, and on the Leal cookbook um, talked about this uneasiness that Tony had and this way in which he always seemed like he was edging out of the room or, you know, kind of, I think that was just, that was, you know, pre-television. And I think that's, that is just kind of who he was. You know, he was always most comfortable when he had something to do with his hands, uh, which I think made him, you know, made being a cook a really uh, attractive proposition for him. You know, he could, he could be friendly, he could be in company with people, but he always had the excuse that he was very, very busy, you know, and he was, he might be talking to you, listening to a story or something, but he's also expediting the brunch service or he's cutting onions or something, you know, so he was, uh, uh, you know, he had a lot of uh, un, un, undifferentiated energy, you know, that needed somewhere to go. Uh, I don't know, it's my, my armchair analysis, but I think it, it, you know, fundamentally was who he was, that he was, he had a discomfort, you know, that he sometimes could, could find a way to ease that through work, through activity, through drugs, through love, you know, um, through being, you know, acts of generosity. Yeah, I, I mean, I heard Mark Maron describe interviewing a, a biographer of Robin Williams, refer to him as a charismatic depressive. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I thought, boy, that fits Tony to a T, is that whenever he is sort of in repose, there's a real isolation mm -hmm. to him. Mm -hmm. um, he looks really sad a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and yet he's better than anybody seemingly at being a raconteur or making people smile or laugh or, or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, my last question would just be, how present is Tony still for you at this stage? You spent 10 years with him. Um, and created this incredible memento of, of who he was with all these people that knew him. Um, is it, is he still there or is it, are you still kind of in a, I don't know if grieving is fair to say, or, or where are you with your relationship to this man? Yeah, it's, uh, he's definitely still there. You know, I mean, I have, I have dreams about him all the time, all the time, you know, and it's always really nice to see him, you know, uh, and I have spent, you know, every day since he died, pretty much I have spent either, you know, writing one of two books about him, talking to people about him, promoting those books. Uh, you know, I'm continuing to do that now with interviews. Uh, I'm going to be doing some speaking about him and about his, you know, his approach to travel uh, in 2022. So he's, you know, he's still very much a part of my life professionally and, you know, uh, psychically. Um, I, I do feel lucky that I had the, the, the opportunity to work through the grief and to, to be able to support myself, uh, you know, with these projects while kind of processing the, the loss. Um, and I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to make the rest of my career on Tony, but it's, you know, it's, he's made an enormous impact on me and my career. It's certainly, uh, you know, it's, it's, I have no reason to uh, try and, um, separate myself from him. I'm very proud to have worked for him and you know he taught me so much and uh you know it's a really it's a really um to me a great association uh 
and he was a very uh, encouraging mentor and, uh, you know, somebody who, who was often trying to you know, use his platform and his influence to help me uh, be, a, a, you know, a, a better known and more successful writer on my own. So, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I think he will, he will, there will always, you know, I will think of him every day, I, I think probably for the rest of my life. Um, and, uh, and, you know, his, there are a few people in my head who I think of when I'm writing, you know, like, what would so-and-so think of this? Or would, would he find this funny or interesting? And, and you know, Tony is, is, is right at the top of, you know, there's maybe two or three people who I kind of write for when I'm writing. So, um, you know, that's, that's a way for me to kind of keep him alive is, is to, you know, just to try and live up to his standard. A friend of mine, DBC Pierre, called that our, our jury. Mm-hmm. We have our right for a certain jury. We all have our, we assemble it mm-hmm. <laughs> ourselves. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I, I really appreciate it. I loved your book. I, I, I can't wait to read more of your stuff in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. 